0: Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The EIS fund market sees a steady flow of new entrants, but how should someone go about starting a new fund? Richard Hoskins of Kin Group helps lots of new managers get started and discusses the challenges and pitfalls. Whether you're thinking of starting a new fund or investing in one, this is essential listening. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all the podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries.harmonicode.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Richard Hoskins, who is co-principal at Kin Group. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much, Brian. Delighted to be here. As usual, we'd all like to get to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in venture Capital?
1: Sure. So I guess really by accident, as much as uh, as much as anything, I started off in the army. That's where um, uh, I went after university for about five years, and then um, just really ended up in the city uh, working for a uh, VC firm, and uh, haven't really looked back since. Just um, carried on uh, working in the space and thoroughly enjoy it. It just seems to um, fit, and uh, I love it. Mm-hmm.
0: And tell us a little bit about Kin Group because Kin are probably a little bit different
1: from. Uh, a lot of the other fund managers that we've had on? Sure. So we are very much a third party fund manager whereby we essentially partner with uh, investment consultants or people that um, do the, the sexy stuff of running around looking for deals, finding investments and um, actually doing the, doing the deals, negotiating the deals with the founders. We are very much a, a fund service provider. And we actually do quite a broad range of services, everything ranging from fund management through fund administration to company secretarial to custodian to compliance consultancy, even starting to do software as well. So lots of different things, all really focused on the the types of things that VC asset managers don't want to do themselves. They just want to focus on uh, doing the deals. And we're able to come along and provide all the various sort of services that that they need. And um, certainly it's part of the trend that, It's happening in the the larger private equity space whereby asset managers are outsourcing the types of activities that we we do simply because it it makes sense to do them at scale and it makes sense to focus on um, what you're good at. And often asset managers aren't so good at the investor relations, the the actual operational side of stuff. So they just want to focus on doing the deals.
0: Yeah, in my experience in the asset management industry, that kind of – Seems to follow trends where sometimes, the whilst see people seem to be moving towards outsourcing, sometimes move towards insourcing. How has technology kind of affected that?
1: Well, I thought, the technology has obviously become far, far more important over the last um, last few years. And we started the business in 2014, and it was very obvious back then that the industry, certainly the venture capital industry, was miles behind where the more mainstream markets were and in terms of what the direction of travel was. Things are certainly improving, but I think the VC industry still got some way to go. There are definitely more solutions out there. But I think the the challenge really is to, certainly for the larger asset managers, do they build something themselves or, or do they actually uh, insource it from from someone else? And I, I think inevitably, whilst it's easier to build tech, than it's ever been and it only really will become more easier to, to do that. The reality is you do need to know what you're doing. It's not just about building the tech. It's about the systems, the processes, the operational side. Certainly I think the, the tech is actually the the relatively easy bit. It's more having those processes locked down and um, making sure everything's communicating as it should be rather than the actual coding as such because you can just buy that in essentially. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I guess that sort of leads on to when I spoke to you initially about coming on, you, you suggested talking about raising your first VC fund, as kind of an interesting jumping off point. And I think that's sort of relevant in terms of, you know, sort of people starting off and trying to figure out all these things like administration, whatever. So, Maybe we could just give a bit of context in terms of what you see in terms of the new funds appearing, how many new funds, how many managers are appearing each year. You know,
1: what's the sort of shape of the market at the moment? Sure. Well, the, the VC market and particularly EIS and, and also Venture Capital Trust has changed massively in the, in the 16, 17 years that I've been uh, working uh, in the space. Initially, when I started off, the only game in town was what I would describe as traditional growth-led uh, EIS funds and, and, and VCTs, what we're used to today. And then we went through the, this um, interesting period whereby actually the vast majority of money was not going into uh, what I would describe as genuine venture capital offerings. Mm-hmm. So it was going into more synthetic mm-hmm. tax planning products. Yeah. But they grew the market hugely. I think at a scale. As well you're absolutely you're absolutely right. and and it did raise the profile of the industry tr- tremendously. and you know financial advisors are far more aware of the likes of EIS and VCTs than they ever have been. And um, you know venture capital more generally is much more accessible and much more known about and, and much more mainstream than it's ever been. and i don't I don't really see that trend uh, changing.
0: Mm-hmm. So are you seeing presumably, most new firm managers who appear sort of knocking on your door, even if they don't sort of uh, take advantage of your services. How many
1: people do you see sort of looking to raise funds? Oh, I I would say we probably get, certainly in over the course of a typical week, we'll normally have a a few people knocking on our door. Obviously, not all of those uh, turn into people managing funds. And bear in mind, that does range from, obviously well established vc firms that are perhaps just looking to outsource a little part of their their proposition uh, and just use us for a discrete part of what, what they're trying to do to more the kind of startup um, managers i was talking this afternoon to someone who uh, is just looking around the market looking at setting up their own eis fund they're just a one one person band at the, at the moment they're essentially looking to monetize their their network of contacts that they they built up over the last eight, nine years. But typically, I'd say that doing it, you know, starting a, a new VC asset management business, it's a difficult thing to do on your own. I think starting any business on your own is going to be a um, a challenge, but particularly when it comes to asset management, because you, you simply have to have people around you to help you. And yes, you can outsource some stuff. But speaking as a, someone that's that started a business uh, themselves, and in fact, Kin started in the, in the very room in which I'm talking to you from now, which is uh, the, um, the, the study of our, our flat and, and what would happen, my, um, my business partner would be coming into uh, our, our flat just as my wife was going off to, to work and we spent the first year of um, our, our time working like that and I can remember having the having this discussion whether it's um, £30 on business cards or or £60 on business cards. Uh, and and so the um, things have changed quite a lot but having that you know having someone with you to um, help um, really balance out the uh, the ups and downs of of building a business I think is really important whatever sort of business you're building whether it's a VC asset management business or um, anything else for that matter.
0: Yeah and that's something I see quite a lot of in the sense of a lot of new people are someone who's typically been a business angel, often had a business themselves that they sort of sold. They had a bit of money. They've been doing angel investing. They kind of like doing it or really like doing it, hopefully. And then they think, well, I can manage people's money. Sometimes I've had a degree of success. Is that a kind of fair perspective or do you see, presumably you see me a lot more than that?
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of people, a a lot of the clients and people wanting to set up VC asset managers fall into that space. The whole VC ecosystem has changed beyond all, all recognition. And I'd say the average quality of the people looking, up, looking to set up funds th- themselves has improved significantly over the last few years. It's much more of a kind of well-trod path now, I think, for an angel or successful entrepreneur to exit a business and then actually set up themselves as a VC asset manager. And I think the UK is probably suffering less from what used to be called uh, Vicarage Syndrome. I I, I don't know whether you've you've heard of the expression of uh, Vicarage Syndrome, but it's the idea that it's really Summarises the difference between uh, the UK and and America, perhaps in terms of what happens to entrepreneurs. And the idea being that in the UK, when someone gets to a position when they've they've got a business that they can walk away from with you know three, four, five, six million pounds in in their back pocket, they retire to the Cotswolds, they buy a nice village, they can send their kids to whatever school they want, they can go on nice holidays, they can get their sort of ski chalet in Chamonix, or, or or wherever, but. But that's then done. They they don't want to do anything more. They're not prepared to to risk anymore. And I think now what what we're seeing is there's more of a entrepreneurial ecosystem whereby you're getting people that are successfully exiting businesses that actually want to stay in the venture capital marketplace and essentially uh, reinvest some of the money that they've made and also really capitalise on that experience and essentially go again, which is fantastic for UK PLC.
0: Yeah, it's 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 one of the things I I've got me I've noticed that difference between sort of the UK and the US a little bit, partially because of what I think of my own perspective. If 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 I exited the business for a few million, what would I do? And I wouldn't quite retire, but I wouldn't be anything like as active as I was before.
1: No, I I, th- I think the world's very different, and people you know no longer have to. You know, people don't retire. at simply because they hit the age of 65. And particularly with things like the ability to work re- remotely, I think that's going to change, change people's lives tremendously in terms of how people work throughout the course of their lives. And, um, yeah, lots of changes.
0: Mm. Yeah. So you get people coming in and start funds. What's their motivation usually? Because kind of, I can think there's
1: a variety. Though. I would say principally they want to build a business and they, they want to become a VC. Why do they want to do that? Because it's a good place to be. If you're running there, sitting on a pot of money and investing, then um, normally people are gonna be doing well. They're gonna be um, making money themselves from the annual management fees and, and the business that they're in, performance fees as well. There are clearly barriers to entry to um, uh, to actually achieve that, and that's probably why it's a good mm-hmm. probably why yes. why it's a good industry to be in. And we'll come on to some of those in a minute. I suspect.
0: Do you see a lot of people talking about? So, so so some people I hear talk about kind of giving back and being part of the community, and they like investing and whatever as a kind of. I mean, fun might be an exaggeration, but an interesting thing to do.
1: I think we're seeing more of that. I think another trend that is very positive is the the rise of social entrepreneurship and the idea of impact and that actually you can do a lot of good through supporting smaller companies and, and helping them grow. I think previously... The choice that an entrepreneur generally had was, well, either retire and buy that place in 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 the Cotswolds or or wherever, and or give you know a substantial amount of money to to charity. Whereas I think that there's probably less interest in simply giving away money to to charity, not because people want to um, stop giving and stop doing good, but just that they feel that they can get more leverage essentially out of their, their capital by making making it work in genuine entrepreneurial businesses. I, I was talking to a founder who um, uh, had a nine figure exit from a uh, software business uh, about a month ago. And, um, you know, his, his challenge, and I, I know it's difficult to imagine without being in that position, what um, what it's like, but he 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 was so passionate about wanting to actually really achieve something with the money that he had created, uh, and I think that that's part of it in terms of what venture capital can can do is essentially it can create a lot of good, employ people, create new technologies that perhaps can you know make people's lives better in all, all sorts of different ways, whether it's healthcare, the way we work, the way we play, whatever it is. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, certainly. As someone who used to be a quoted fund manager, and while I'm not a fund manager in this space, I I do see a lot of companies. I find this area a lot more interesting and a lot more dynamic than being. You, you know, I guess if you're trying to be the 50th person to try and figure out whether Barclays is going to get better results, well, you're not the 50th, you're the 500th. Yeah. I think.
1: Mm. No, no, um, I, I I think there are tremendous differences between. The, uh, the unquoted and, uh, and the quoted markets and I, I think it it goes back to uh, your, your previous uh, podcast actually you had Doug Lawson on from um, uh, marked market and I, I think that some of the things Doug was saying he was explaining about you know the, the tremendous differences you can have between different types of businesses and the, and the real challenge is making sure you're comparing apples with apples rather than apples with with, with pears whereas in the quoted market it's easy enough to get you know look at all the companies in a, in a particular you know market cap range or a particular uh, sector it's much harder to do that in the um uh, unquoted space and that's part of the fun uh, and also it's much more network driven in in, in the private private markets yeah
0: uh, yeah yeah because information. I mean, again, coming back to conversation with Doug, information is just a lot more lim- limited, you know, and, and it's and it's hard to do. So coming back to the idea of starting your VC fund, what do you see as the big challenges and the big blockages
1: yeah. sure. um, for people? I think from my perspective, and I'm slightly biased here because... I've probably spent the majority of my time on the fundraising side, rather than actual uh, the fund management or the administration side. So certainly, I've, I've I've moved into the fund administration and the fund operational side, having spent. Uh, a lot of time on, on on the fundraising side um and so therefore there there is always a danger that you know if you're a hammer you see every problem as a nail and i see every every new fund as a fundraising problem first and uh, and, and foremost so the question is how are you going to raise the raise the cash and inevitably, the, the conversations that I have with new and and, and want to be asset managers often they're, they're, there's some very common elements to those those conversations and i I, I end up r- repeating myself or, or rather thinking that I'm repeating myself, but then i'm I find out that I'm actually saying it to this person for the um, uh, the first time. And I think the the key thing would be first of all on to answer the structuring question. how how do you do it? It's easy, in the sense of, uh, or rather, very simple. You've got to simply reverse engineer the fund structure to suit wherever the cash is going to come from. Because, in, in, unless you raise the money, well, then everyone's uh, wasting mm. their yeah. w- wasting their time. And presumably, and when just, it
0: comes to structure, there's you know, there's fifty or sixty of EIS funds out there there's probably been two or three times that or four times that if you go back history. There's lots of models that you can use to say, this is the way an EIS fund works.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we are certainly seeing that things are changing a a little bit in the sense of, one example of, uh, of the things that we're seeing at the moment is the fact that actually quite a lot of non-EIS investors are investing in EIS funds or, or certainly uh, amongst our clients, which is slightly unusual. You, you would think, well, why on earth would an investor invest uh, in an EIS fund, um, where they're not able to benefit from the the tax reliefs. And that's simply a function of the fact that they, they want to get access to the, the the early stage deal flow. There's more and more competition for deals at a kind of Series A and Series B level. And typically, EIS funds are more sort of seed uh, Series A, pre, pre-Series A. Um, and investing in, in an EIS fund allows you to sort of access those, those deals. And often it's the newer asset managers because they're investing uh, and um, generally managing smaller funds. They're actually able to find really interesting businesses that are very much off the radar of the larger managers. And and it's amazing to see how often we'll start working with a uh, a new asset manager. They'll raise their first fund of five, 10 million, something like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the big VCTs and EIS managers are all over them in terms of, you know, co-investing with them and, and keen to pally out to them and, and do deals. Because in VC, as you, as you well know, you've got this. And again, this is a difference between VC and and, and the public markets. You've got this strange sort of uh, coopetition type of relationship with your competitors where you're um, you're competing with them on one hand for money and sometimes on deals but actually you also need to work with them as well and, and and that's one of the things i enjoy about the space because you've got that you've got that interesting dynamic to it that i don't think you have in the uh, quoted markets because you're simply you know putting a, a bid in against you know probably some algorithm run by a big investment bank rather than actually doing a deal with a a human being
0: yeah, I think in the quoted markets, it's, 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 it, there's no it's almost zero sum in the sense that if I get the deal, you, you know, my competitor B loses out, or if I get the enhanced allocation, or if I perform, I just want to outperform.
1: Uh, absolutely, it's all about inefficiencies and, and hunting those down, and far easier to do that in the um, unquoted markets than the and quoted. Is,
0: and, it, and is that sort of something that's changed? Because I think. In the last few months in particular, we've seen VCT market really hot, really raising a lot of money. And while we know valuation's a bit up, one or two people are sort of saying, well, how are they going to deploy it? And is deal flow an issue? And do you think you see VCTs saying, well, actually, we're going to have to work harder to deploy this. We're going to have to find this. And one way we can do this is, as you say, to go to these small new managers and sort of go basically... Get all over their deal flow.
1: I think that's the easiest thing for the, for them to do. And and bear in mind that the, the VCTs, what they this year, they will have raised over a billion. I, I'm sure by the time we come to the end of the uh, the tax year, we haven't already passed that milestone yet. I don't think quite um, yet, but but, but I, I think it's pr- pretty inevitable that we will do. Now, bear in mind they will have already had collectively as an industry a billion or maybe even probably closer to two billion of uninvested cash. So I think there's there's definitely going to be pressure uh, pressure on them to uh, get that cash to you know, be deployed into decent businesses. Because bear in mind, the VCT market, again, is different from what it was you know, five, six years ago in terms of the rule changes have only made it more challenging for managers to deploy capital. They have to deploy that capital more of it and more quickly than they've ever had to do it uh, previously. So I think the you know, accelerators and incubators. Um, if I was raising money from a from an accelerator or an incubator as a small um, startup business, the VCT managers would be the first place I'd be knocking on the on the door of, simply because they've got lots of cash to uh, to invest.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. So, if you're a new fund manager, how does that work? Because if you're an EIS, inevitably your first thought is retail. In some sense in getting to private investors who gain from the tax relief should you be actively marketing to this kind of later stage
1: market do you think how do you actually work over that it's challenging i think the probably the best advice is just to you know focus on essentially what your usp is or 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 where you can add the most uh, value just to challenge that when you say the, the retail market is, is the obvious one to go for. Again, something you know, that we're seeing is we've certainly got clients that have raised money from universities and, and all sorts of organizations that you wouldn't actually expect to be investing in a EIS fund, um, but they want to get access to, uh, to, to deals essentially.
0: Yeah. And some of it comes back, I think, you know, the, the the white paper I wrote last year suggesting venture capital makes sense as a as part of an asset allocation, even without the tax reliefs. And I'm sure that's figuring in people's thoughts as
1: well. Uh, complete, completely agree. The, the last um, EIS fund I invested in was two years ago. Now, I have already had my capital back. So I've had one exit. Within the three-year period, so I don't get my my uh, tax relief, I lose the uh, small amount of tax relief I claimed on on that particular investment. But essentially, all of my risk has been taken off the table, and I'm I'm now sitting with a, a paper gain of well, you know, three, four times the amount of money that I, I invested. Now. That sort of level of return is obviously it's not always going to work like that, and I'd be the first to admit that I've invested in funds that have you know completely bombed, and, and the only cash return I've received has been loss relief. So I'm, I'm certainly not you know uh, I'm I'm not lucky in terms of where I uh, deploy my uh, my uh, meagre capital myself, but it just goes to show that when when you get it right, if you back the right managers that have got proprietary deal flow, that's that's the real secret I think as an investor. It's about Working out which managers are genuinely different from from the others out there, because it has got an increasingly become an increasingly crowded um, marketplace. And I think for a new asset manager, probably the best advice I would give is just to think about what makes you different. and there's there's always there's always a challenge with that. and it makes me think it, of it doesn't
0: It's not been an easy thing because I've seen, you know where I sit, I see a lot of new managers coming through, and every second or third one, I'm rolling my eyes a little bit and saying, "Oh, here's just another tech fund, and I don't really know in what way they're different from everybody else." So, how if someone comes to you, how do you suggest they find a way of differentiating themselves?
1: Well, I I tell them a story normally, and again, this is another another example of where I end up uh, repeating myself, um, or or certainly think that I do. And it's about Brian, but not uh, Brian Miretti of Hardman. Uh, It's about uh, Monty Python and the Life of Brian. And you may remember, I I take it, if you. you I've seen seen
0: with my name. How could I not see it? Well, (laughs) exactly,
1: exactly. But there's my favourite scene in there is where Brian's sort of talking to the crowd, and he says to them, "You're all different." And they all talk back to him in unison and say, yes, we're all different all <laughs> t- all, all, all together." And sometimes I do think, you know, particularly new VC asset managers and, and the younger managers do sometimes fall into that trap of thinking that they're different when actually they're not. Now, the, the irony is often they will have things that do make them genuinely different, but they don't necessarily know what those things are. And, and that's where it's... Um, useful to um, tap into the various different resources in, in the industry, uh, speak to people, network. Uh, you've obviously got the um, new entrant network that you run, Brian Hardman runs. It's something that's difficult. It's difficult to be reflective yourself, particularly when you, you don't necessarily know what's gone on before you in the in the industry and, and what has maybe happened 10, 12, 13, 14 years ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, 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 and the people who do differentiate themselves do often have something, a, a really good story. I mean, I, I don't know why, but I'm thinking of a manager who is in B2B SaaS, and they have a playbook for developing, you know, effectively growing sales. So they invest a very particular stage, and and B2B SaaS is a really crowded space. In, a, in some ways, lots of people are doing it, but they have... Dug in and so sort of said. Here's how we differentiate ourselves, and I think that's quite interesting.
1: And I think you touched on an important point there—that consistency of message. Now, from the sound of it, I don't think that uh, asset manager has necessarily changed what they're they're doing. It sounds to me like they have decided what makes them different. They've stuck with it, and they've just sort of banged that drum repeatedly until you and everyone else in the market, you know, knows who who, who they are. I think it's a a trap you can fall into that you just change your messaging according to whatever is flavor of the day. And I think the marketplace is savvy enough to to know when they're being sold to and being told something that uh, is just window dressing rather than it, it's genuinely in, in your DNA. And it's about having the confidence to, um, you know, to be to be genuinely you because if not you know, people you know the analysts such as yourself you know generally will um uh, find you out or, or certainly ask you challenging uh challenging questions
0: yeah yeah and, and to be fair i think some people it's not a case of flavor of the day a little case i think they're just trying to find a message that sticks they go in and perhaps a little bit naive or perhaps it's very hard to not be naive if you're coming as a new manager because there's 60 funds out there and, and you and it's very difficult to go in and look at all of them. And they're sort of saying, okay, I'll try this message. Oh, no, that doesn't work. I'll try this message. And that, I mean, it's, it's the same effect, but um, motivation is perhaps a little more
1: charitable. Well, it, it, exactly. And also the challenge is not just, you know, not just identifying what makes you different, but creating, turning that into a brand as well. But that, that That can be something that is difficult simply on the basis of, the fact that it's a lot more of a crowded market, not just the EIS or VCT market, but the asset management marketplace more generally, and also just you know take the example of our own brand Kin. Back in 2014, when we incorporated, you know, there weren't many businesses with with Kin in the title. I don't think we could we could find any at at the time apart from a uh, cafe. Whereas now, you know, there there are all sorts of companies with with kin in the name but i think the that that's not because of us that's simply the fact that the world has become a lot more competitive space and if you think of a brand uh, and and try and bag the domain name or the name on company's house you'll find that uh, it's quite difficult to find something that's genuinely original and distinctive from other people in the marketplace and sometimes I do find myself looking at a new asset manager and their brand uh, proposition and I sometimes question whether they're related to another firm just because I, I was looking at this uh, just yesterday actually. On someone's branding, and I wondered whether there was any relationship. And I think it's probably because they all use the same designers, or mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know why. Don't know why, but well, um, it's that um, thing about that.
0: blue, blue's the the color for websites because that's the color that people trust. So all financial web financial companies use blue on their website, and that's kind of the paradigm. So you end up with this kind of uniformity.
1: No, no you, you, you're right. There's a kind of um, um, rush to the, rush to the middle, I, I guess the challenge another challenge is kind of being distinctive but not being too too crazy about it. And and it's difficult to get that uh difficult to get that right. We've um in fact I probably shouldn't um shouldn't name them but but there's a firm that we we've just started working with who is actually there one of the co-founders of Social Chain who Steve Bartlett from uh, Dragon's Den is uh, obviously he co-founded that business um, Social Chain and one of his co-founders has uh, started a business uh, and we're a VC business and we're helping them and I really like what they've done with their branding I, I don't know whether Steve Bartlett's um, had any uh, influence on that but um, who knows he might well uh, might even be an investor who knows I'm
0: afraid I that's beyond my knowledge so you you mentioned deal flow as um, or unique deal flow as, as an area of differentiation. It seems to me one of the challenges for a lot of new managers is not deal flow because actually getting deal flow is really easy. Getting quality deal flow mm. in the right, or at least in the right quantity that can be more of a challenge.
1: I couldn't couldn't agree more. I think deal flow is the essentially it's the unsung hero of Venture capital, I think, because without quality deal flow, you're simply not going to produce uh, decent returns. It, it's, it is everything in, in my book, from from what I've seen out there in the um, in, in the marketplace. If you set up a website tomorrow and simply say you've got cash to invest, I'm sure you'll get hundreds and thousands of pitch decks arriving in through your inbox. Whether any of them will be any good, probably not. And I think another. And this is all driven by the the wall of cash that that's at um, Series B and C and, and starting to move down into um, uh, Series A and, and below. But it's just this more cash chasing the, the the deals that if you're able to curate deals, I think that's a uh, interesting space because then essentially you're guaranteed that they are proprietary deals because you're there actually creating the companies and you know. What do you mean by curating that
0: context?
1: Is it, what I mean is you're perhaps, you you're venture building uh, essentially. So you, you you are putting people together, you're putting business ideas with great people and maybe looking at a company and uh, looking at some of its IP and then turning that into a sort of separate, business so it's kind of uh, like what
0: I think of as the studio aspect where
1: yeah
0: you you are you, you, not just sort looking for companies you you're you're you're, you're actually yeah. there day one
1: yeah Correct. And I think it's probably just a terminology thing. I mean, I couldn't even tell you what a venture studio was. Is it the same thing as an incubator? What's the difference between an accelerator and an incubator? Well, I suppose six you could months say, ago, I
0: didn't know the difference either.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. Is an accelerator genuinely later stage than an incubator? Well, you would have thought it would be, given the um, given the names. But again, it's all about um, you know the, the challenge of comparing um, like with like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, so someone comes with deal flow, how
1: does, does somebody improve their quality of deal flow? Oh, I think it's about having like any, with any high performance organization, it's about having a process in place, which allows you to look at what you've missed out on, look at what hasn't worked. I think there is a danger that you, people shy away from failure and actually, I think I've I've learned to consider failure a, a real asset, provided you use it in the right way. And uh, and one of the one of the things that we try try and do, and it's certainly not not easy, is to create a culture whereby when things go wrong and people make mistakes, which they they do, that, that that's life. We we sit down and have an honest chat about why whatever it is went wrong, and you know, try and learn what we can from that without you know blaming. People uh, and really focusing on, on trying to improve what we do. And I think with with deal flow, certainly you can take a similar uh, uh, approach uh, and look at the deals that you know perhaps you missed out on uh, and think, well, actually, if this if we are an investor in I don't know, you know green tech, whatever that is, you look and, and think, well, why wasn't I? You know, why didn't I become aware of that? Deal. Who was the introducer? Who, which incubator or accelerator or studio or whatever did it come from? Right. You know, we need to have a contact, contact there. So I think it's just really having that feedback loop and making sure that's uh, that's humming nicely. Mm-hmm.
0: There's some managers I see who do very interesting things on sort of deal flow where they they sort of track the companies they rejected. As well, and see how how well they've done, and then kind of review why they got decisions mm. wrong. And it's not just looking at your, what you what you selected, but what you didn't mm. select can be. Uh,
1: I, I've seen similar similar. I've probably this is going back a bit now, probably about eight nine years. So this particular investor has probably moved down the the food chain into much earlier stage deals but the thing that amazed me was how early and for how long they're tracking uh, deals before they actually do them and in, in some cases it, it was to sort of, you know 3 years plus plus. and i'm sure that part of their reason for uh, industry leading performance at the time was very much the approach they had, had taken on on deal flow and also bear in mind i i've you know in one way or or the other i've worked with well dozens and dozens of um, both VCT managers and uh, EIS managers. And th- th- this point about deal flow, I, I can't can't state it enough, I think, in terms of how important it is in terms of driving returns. Because let's face it, and, and I think a uh, sometimes asset managers aren't quite as honest about this as they, they probably should be. But luck has got a lot to do with um, the, the generation of returns. And they're probably not uh, as honest
0: as with themselves. It's not just other we, people
1: well i I think you're you're absolutely right on on that point but it's about putting yourself in the position to be lucky so for instance give an example we have got uh, quite a few clients that are based in cambridge now um, i know that given cambridge as a cluster does you know particularly uh, well that actually if you were to to randomly throw a dart on anywhere in the uk and and find a business that was going to be a you know billion pound company that actually Cambridge is a good place for that dart to land. Now, that's not that's not to say that there aren't, you know, fantastic uh, companies and fantastic technology right across the UK. You know, we have clients, uh, our furthest client West is in Dartmouth, believe it or not. Uh, we've got clients up in Scotland. We've got clients in uh, Northern Ireland. So we've got clients all, all over the place. But I think it, it's, you know, Again, it's about deal flow. And um, if you can be somewhere where you're more likely to be lucky, then I think that that's about as good as you can be. And I don't just mean. Be physically based there. I mean, you know, have some sort of engagement with these organisations. Because let's face it, the idea of being physically based somewhere it is it's still relevant, but it's less important than it, than it's ever been, and it will only get less important over the course of time. I think.
0: Yeah, and and certainly, I think I've seen some new managers who come in and have been very very proactive about engaging with people to generate deal flow. They've gone to accelerators, incubators, said where where's relevant. Um, and they've put in that hard work. And it's interesting because over time, they have to put in less work mm. because they, mm. the name becomes known, they become established. And by doing that, the deal flow starts to generate naturally with that, or the good deal flow and without them actually ha- you know, having to call up an incubator every every month and say, hey, what new companies
1: have you got? Uh, I think there is a bit of um, path dependency in terms of the well, probably path dependency might not be the right word, but in terms of well, maybe it is in terms of the, the amount and quality of the deal that deals that uh, managers get. Because obviously, if they have a brilliant exit in a particular sector, then entrepreneurs will see that and they'll think, oh, who backed that particular company and that manager will, their name will be up in lights. And therefore, they'll often approach that particular uh, manager first when it comes to funding their business. So, so there is a bit of you know, self-perpetuating um, you know, aspect to it.
0: Yeah, the challenge for new managers, of course, is that they don't necessarily have that credibility.
1: No, absolutely. So therefore, you just have to really kind of try and hack all the various sort of networks that you, you, you've got um, and again, it goes back to understanding what makes you different and just trying to milk that to death, really.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. So, one comment I've heard several times from people who, particularly when they come as angels, is they say, I came in as an angel. I've done a few investments or maybe a lot of investments. I thought I know what we was doing, but running a fund is different. Uh, are a lot more different than I expect it to be. Now, I expect deal flow is one of those. What other aspects do you think that they would be talking about?
1: I think there's a bit of a parallel here between running a fund and. Actually, running any business, and in, in the sense of, in an ideal world, probably that that angel, when they're thinking about making the move into fund management, they probably think, "Great, I'm going to be able to spend, you know, 95% of my time sitting there with people pitching to me all day, mm-hmm. and I'll be able to cherry pick the very best mm-hmm. deals." Actually, the reality is. Yeah, the, the fun bit exactly uh the reality is they'll probably spend five percent of their time doing that and the rest of the time they'll be doing you know dealing with the latest fca rule changes or kind of dealing with um investor reporting or whatever it is but th- there's a lot to it and again that goes back to the, the outsourcing piece and, and, and why there's this trend to outsource services and essentially not try and do everything yourself, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: someone was sort of thinking about doing this. What sh- should there be the first steps? Other than speaking to Ken, of course. Yeah, of,
1: of of course. I mean, there there are other other managers and service providers are, are available. I think I, I would encourage people to look at the um, EISA Website ESA, they've got some good resources there. Obviously, Hardman's runs a new, new, um, new entrant network. Yeah. Uh, the British Business Bank. Has, yeah, happy to speak to people too. Um, the British B- Business Bank has some quite good uh, resources, and, and don't forget the the British Business Bank is a major investor in UK venture capital. And, you know, they are doing some really great work in terms of uh, the various programs that they run. There's the Regional Angel program, uh, and we're quite he- heavily involved in um, supporting various EIS managers. Yeah. And that several have, of our uh, clients uh, seem uh, to be getting money yeah, from it. So uh, have tapped into that. And I think they're going to be more, more announcements imminently, which is which is great news uh, for the regions. There's also the enterprise capital fund program as well. But bear in mind, obviously the British Business Bank, whilst they've got cash to, to deploy, they aren't necessarily quite as quick to actually give you that cash as perhaps some organizations uh, are. So I, I would certainly encourage early engagement with the British Business Bank if you think that in a year or two years time, you might want to be tapping into their, their various different uh, programs, but they've got lots of cash um, and, and they're great a great partner to have on board if you can. But again, early engagement really is the, um, the secret for any dealings w- with them. Uh, and just really to network, talk to people in the market, understand, you know that the fundraising problem um, is the one to get cracked if you can narrow down where the cash is going to come from, then actually you will save yourself a lot of time later on in the process because rather than having lengthy debates on you know how you should structure this or how you should who you should use to provide this service, if you know where the cash is going to come from or at least have a reasonable idea then essentially you can back everything out from uh, from, from that mm
0: hmm that sounds that sounds interesting because that's not the way I would have thought of it. You know, naturally, my, my thought would be structure first, then go out and raise the money. But I'm sure I feel that's very good advice. So, what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So, I'll throw these at you um, and get your thoughts because you're not a direct manager. I'm going to skip a couple. But so, tell us about your time you failed and what you learned from it. You said you like yeah. failure. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, a time that I failed. I think um, that the challenge with that question is sort of narrowing down you know, which time I failed. I think probably most relevant to this is probably, I'll give you one that's recent and also relates to a first-time fund. It doesn't matter which uh, fund this relates to, but this is timely because we've just actually made the last payment of cash back to investors for this particular fund. and And what we do after that, Point in time is we have a essentially like a in, in military speak an after action review, and just identify the various different uh, lessons learned, and we think about what we could could have done better. Um, I think in and, some businesses call them post mortems, which yes,
0: what, it, I never like because
1: no one's ever died. But well, exactly. Except they did my previous um, oh, yes, uh, previous yes. pre- previous job, but I think um, the lesson that we learned on that particular fund was. One of the things you're trying to to do when you're raising money for a first-time fund is you're you're obviously trying to persuade investors to invest in something that is essentially a black box. You know, they don't they can't see the deals that they're necessarily going to be investing in. So therefore they want to have as big a possible steer as you can give them in terms of what those deals are going to be and what those what sort of characteristics they might have in terms of revenues and profitability and sector and all the rest of it so you are encouraged to to give that information to them and i think the mistake we made with this fund is we were a little too prescriptive um, and we, we were a little bit too precise in terms of what we were going to do with the fund in terms of the the investment strategy was a little bit too predefined and inevitably we ended up having to go back to investors not once but twice to actually change the mandate of uh, what we were doing, and I, I th- there were reasons for that in terms of it, it was a new type of in, investment structure. So, again, getting someone over the line for something that is new in terms of concepts is, is always going to be, um, hard. But I think that's the lesson that we learned there,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I suppose that applies to when we talk about finding a USP, is it, it's fine having a USP, but if you're a USP, only allows you to invest in five companies in, in the UK, it's probably not a good USP. No, agreed. So the EIS and VCT industry in which we work is great in many ways, but it could do with a lot of improvement too. What would you like to change about it?
1: I think it's not so much the EIS industry, it's more the v, VCT industry I, I would like to see change, just because it is very much a... A closed shop. Uh, I know that might make some managers uncomfortable. And I remember in the early stages of our business, we um, uh, there was a press release that um, was was picked up and made some reference to the VCT industry being a closed shop. And we actually got sent that press release, or rather that article, back by a VCT manager with a certain part of it highlighted, saying, "You know, the VCT industry is not a closed shop." Which kind of. Probably suggests it might be (laughs) if someone's going to take that much of an issue with uh, someone (laughs) accusing it of being a closed Mm shop. But I think the fact is there there are some you know naturally, uh, particularly intermediaries are drawn to VCTs by virtue of the fact that they are you know that they are more at least slightly more liquid than EIS funds. But I think there are some you know fantastic new um, EIS managers out there, and often it's the early funds. That a um, asset manager is working on that perform the best because obviously they're they're able to get in at lower valuations it's more more about them actually having to find brilliant investments rather than deploy capital Uh, which obviously if you are a large manager raising many millions of pounds each year then it becomes a more of a deployment process and deployment issue than an investment process but i think it's just uh, two, I've given you two things there. One, the VCT industry being less of a closed shop. I don't think that's going to happen without changes to le- legislation. Well, but- I
0: think it's partly market-led as well, and that a lot of VCTs are sold on the yield and the dividend and, and the regular income. And new VCTs just don't have a yield. And I can think of, you know, there's a couple of new ones out there. So Blackfinch have recently launched one and I guess you've got Seneca, but although they, they've got yield on there as well. So you do have
1: some new managers finally coming in, but it's, it's a long haul. Uh, and, and I think we may be, and I, I flagged this up to one of our clients uh, very recently. And again, it'll be interesting to see whether this happens or not. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying that it's um, maybe there's a 50% chance of it uh, happening. We might be at an inflection point, in the VCT market. I think so much money has, is being raised this year that VCTs are now kind of so so attractive as a marketplace that um, there will be more new entrants coming into the marketplace next tax year. And in fact, already talking to someone that's um, looking to do just that. But obviously, the, the barriers to entry in the VCT market are even bigger than uh, in the E- EIS market you know much more costs to get up, up and running so a uh, bit of a long-winded answer there but um, uh, definitely some interesting dynamics in the um, uh, VCT industry. Yeah and I can't help but agree in the sense that
0: more competition from an investor perspective has got to be good and totally. you know there's the, the, as, as one or two people in there who've kind of incumbents and they kind of raise it seems like no matter what they do uh and and not not all the vc there's
1: there's a lot of good vc managers but not all of them are terrific hmm. uh, and also i think actually there are plenty of vct managers that should, probably should be looking at doing eis funds going back to your point about whether they're you know how do they get deal flow given they've got so much cash to, to invest i think there are eis managers or other VCT managers out there that would be well placed to enter the um, EIS fund marketplace and obviously the tax release far far more attractive and the nice thing is essentially you've got the guarantee of further support from the VCT at a later stage perhaps fr- from the same um, same manager and in fact one of the another trend that we're, we're seeing in the industry a client that we secured very recently is um, they don't they're not a VCT manager but they've got three, four hundred million of um, limited partnership money. And they've actually just entered the VCT or rather they've just entered the EIS I- I industry. Now, it's not a mass market product at the moment, but it may well become one over the course of time. And what they're looking to do is essentially just do a sort of sidecar arrangement, because obviously they've got lots of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals that, that know them and they want to um, give access to their deals in a way in which is tax efficient for for those individuals. So we are seeing and talking to a number of larger VC managers that haven't been in the VCT or EIS space, but are certainly looking to start in the EIS marketplace.
0: Yeah, we've got a new client who's got an EIS fund, which is VGC, who were on the podcast about uh, a month or so ago. And they, they have essentially come down their GPLP and they've, they've come down. Um, and I know at least one of the managers got a sidecar to their LP fund for EIS. So it's, maybe it's something that we'll see more of in the future. No,
1: I think you're probably right on that.
0: So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and I love the recommendations that people give me. So are there any books out there that you would, that you like and would recommend to people?
1: So I'm a bit of a bookworm myself. My um my Bluetooth headset has certainly during um lockdown has been kind of glued to my head. I guess uh, what would I, if I had to pick one recently, uh, probably my favorite, just because it's very actionable is uh, Atomic Habits. Have you read um, Atomic Habits by I James Clear? I haven't Quitt? read it yet. Really, really good. It's okay. Business books are, you know, some are great, some are not. But this is a really, really, really actionable book that is applicable not just to not not just to business, but also just to life generally. So, so I would strongly recommend that. I also, if you read any of the Jim Collins books, Good to Great, Beyond Entrepreneurship, they seem to be
0: flavor so, of twenty twenty
1: two because I've had a couple of them recommended recently. Okay, well, I, I'm a, I got into those during the first uh, lockdown. I think you know Jim Collins is, you know, the, the way he looks at things is just so, so good, and I can really identify with it a lot. And in fact, um, I actually dropped him a, dropped him a note. I sent him a little book uh, just to thank him because I'd I'd learned so much from um, his his first book. Um, And it was actually the uh, book called Serve to Lead, which is the book they issue you at the Royal Military Academy, um, Sandhurst. And that was actually before I'd even found out that he had actually taught at the US version of uh, West Point, uh, US version of Sandhurst, uh, West Point. So it's kind of um, um, anything by Jim Collins. I'm a big uh, big fan. Mm
0: Yeah, so I think he's got half a dozen in 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 the series. So we'll we'll find a list of them somewhere and <laughs> put them all put them all in the show notes. What do you wish you knew when you start with Kin that you know now?
1: Yeah, well, I think I'll, I'll probably credit Jim Collins with this one. Actually, I think it's just about having as a business a resolute purpose um, and just making sure that everyone is focused on that purpose because let's face it none of us like being managed and I, th- I think you don't you don't need to manage people if they're directed in the in the right direction they genuinely understand what the organization is trying to trying to do and I think that's something that we we've made a real point of doing over the last few years just making sure everyone's on the same page we're all pulling in the in, in the same direction we're all focused on, on on the same goals excellent so did
0: you not really have that to begin with
1: well, I think our, our business has changed a bit over the course of time. I think our, our business goal to start with was just survive, which kind of probably in, in some ways might be the right approach to have for a business. It, it certainly helped us get to a certain point. Uh, you know, not dying is actually quite a good business business strategy. It's something um, a lot of businesses don't manage. So. <laughs> well, it, it, exactly. But it it, um, it took a while before we kind of, Really identified how we could, we think, get really big and uh, be very successful uh, uh, as a business. But um, that took a bit of time, a bit of time to do. We didn't do it at the start, but I wish that we had probably started a bit earlier, just because I think we'd be even further ahead than um, where we are today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if anyone wanted to find out more about what you're doing at Kin, where should they go?
1: Just um, ping me an email at um, r.hoskins at kin group.co.uk or hit me up on LinkedIn. Excellent.
0: We shall put both of those in the show notes, and I'm sure plenty of people will be in touch. Otherwise, thank you for very much for coming on today, Richard. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Uh, likewise, Brian. It's been great to uh, great great to catch up. So, we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out
0: more, the show notes will be available at HardmanCo.com/slash/podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonico.com.
1: Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.